Hi, and welcome to this audio edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. On this program, we discuss polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism from a biblical Christian perspective. We talk about the history of polygamy, its modern-day fruit, share stories from people who have escaped polygamy, and talk about current events relating to polygamy. You can learn more about the video edition of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. And now, here's Doris. our show tonight, Polygamy, What Love Is This? I am your host, Doris Hansen, and welcome to the new year, 2013. You know, this begins the second half of the fifth year of our television show, and we are grateful to all of our viewers who have supported us with encouragement and with prayer throughout these past five years, and we're also very grateful to God for giving us the privilege and the opportunity to do this, and for TV20, who gives us the opportunity and for the first time in Mormon polygamy history, the opportunity to share the story and the stories of the tragedy of life in polygamy. You know, Jesus said that there's nothing done in secret uh, that won't be revealed. And God is giving us this chance to reveal the previously hidden secrets of what is going on in polygamy groups and what has gone on in the past. And, of course, to crush the delusion that has been too long hanging over the heads of the people in Mormondom. And that is that polygamy was commanded by God when, in truth, it's the devil's lie. And I don't know how many of our viewers were surprised when they woke up the morning of December 22nd and discovered that they were still here. You know, the biblical illiterate people often fall for weird scare tactics and doomsday prophecies, yet at the same time, they'll stubbornly refuse to believe the Bible, even though the Bible tells us very clearly that these predictions cannot be trusted. All this hoopla began when someone looked at the Mayan calendar and decided that it predicted the end of the world, which of course was nonsense. And those who can believe the Mayans and disregard the Bible should expect to be deceived. But truth to tell, just to put it all to rest, the Mayan calendar ran in cycles. They had several different cycles, each representing various lengths, much like we have a 10-year cycle for a decade and a 100-year cycle for a century and a 1,000 years for a millennium. Allegedly, according to the Mayan calendar, December 21st was merely the end of one of those cycles. And when that was completed, it would begin another cycle. You know, the executive director of the Advancement of Mesoamerican Studies is Sandra Noble. And she said that, and I quote, for the ancient Maya, it was a huge celebration to make it to the end of one of the cycles. She said that the portrayal of December 2012 as a doomsday was, and I quote again, a complete fabrication and a chance for a lot of people to cash in, end quote. And of course, doomsday scenarios have come and gone needlessly for a long, long time and can be expected to continue as long as people love myths rather than the truth. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse, verse 36, quote, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And a few verses later, Jesus said in verse 44, The Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. 
So if you were expecting the world to end with the Mayan calendar, that's when it wouldn't end. And the world will not end anyway until after Jesus returns the second time. So you can depend on it. God's word is true, not the Mayan calendar, not anyone or any organization that sets dates for Christ's return. For an example, to bring all this together in the topic of our show, in the 1800s, there were several doomsday prof uh, prophecies that were predicting the end of the world and global destruction and Jesus' return and all kinds of awful events. And we're going to look at a few of those unfulfilled predictions. I quote the first one. It says, For not many days hence, and the earth shall tremble and reel to and fro as a drunken man, and the sun shall hide his face and shall refuse to give light, and the moon shall be bathed in blood, and the stars shall become exceedingly angry, and shall cast themselves down as a fig that falleth from off a fig tree. Now this prophecy gives a time indication which it says is not many days shall pass until this happens. But over 150 years have passed, not days, but years, and this prophecy has failed to, to come to its completion. Where can this doomsday prophecy be found? Does anyone recognize it? Well, you can find it in Doctrine and Covenants 88 verse 87. Who spoke this doomsday prophecy? None other than Joseph Smith. It didn't happen. And therefore, Joseph Smith cannot be trusted ever for anything. <clears throat> That's what God said, not what I said. And Smith didn't stop with just one doomsday prediction. There's more. Let's look at Doctrine and Covenants 110 verse 16, which prophecy was made in 1836. Smith predicted, quote, Therefore, the keys of this dispensation are committed into your hands, and by this you may know that the great and dreadful day of the Lord is near, even at the doors. Well, over 175 years have passed, and the great and dreadful day of the Lord didn't come. False prophecy. How about Doctrine and Covenants 33, verse 3, which he predicted in 1830, quote, for behold, the field is white, all ready to harvest, and it is the eleventh hour and the last time that I shall call laborers into my vineyard. In this prediction, there are three indicators in this prophecy which limits it to a tight, inflexible, and specific fulfillment. Over 175 years have come and gone. It wasn't the eleventh hour at all. And it certainly was not the last time that the Mormon laborers were called into the vineyard. Three times uh, were mentioned and none of them came to pass. How about Doctrine and Covenants chapter 29 verses 9 and 10 again given in 1830. For the hour is nigh, and the day soon at hand, when the earth is ripe, and all the proud and they that do wickedly shall be as stubble. And I will burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that wickedness shall not be upon the earth. For the hour is nigh, and that which was spoken by mine apostles must be fulfilled. For as they spoke, so shall it come to pass. Again, he said, the hour is nigh, yet it's been 183 years and the hour did not come to pass. 
History of the Church, Volume 2, Chapter 13, page 181, written in Kirtland, February 14, 1835, says, and I quote, President Smith then stated that the meeting had been called because God had commanded it and it was made known to him by vision and by the Holy Spirit. It was the will of God that they go forth to prune the vineyard for the last time or the coming of the Lord which was nigh, even 56 years, should wind up the scene. Well, this prophecy was made in 1835. 56 years added to 1835 would bring us to the year 1891. And the vineyard was not pruned for the last time in 1835. Both of Joseph Smith's statements identify him as a false prophet because Jesus didn't come back in 1891 or by that time. All these prophecies proved as unreliable as the doomsday Mayan calendar and as unreliable as Warren Jeffs and his sporadic doomsday prediction that he's been threatening since the 2002 Olympics took place in Salt Lake City. At that time, Warren Jeff said that Salt Lake was the most wicked city in the world and God was going to destroy it. So he called all of his FLDS members to pick up and move out of this wicked city. And of course they did. And of course, God did not destroy Salt Lake City or any other city that year. Warren Jeffs continues to predict the end of the world and 2012 was no exception. It seems to be a Christmas tradition with him, or as someone claims, it is more than likely a Joseph Smith's birthday commemorative tradition for Warren Jeffs to predict the end of the world. This time, Warren Jeffs warned that there would be a disastrous cleansing. All his people were to prepare backpacks and be ready to leave at a moment's notice. And they did and nothing happened. When his predictions fail, Jeffs blames the people for his false prophecies, charging them with not having enough faith for it to happen or that they were not pure enough for it to happen. Well, this is what God says about prophets who prophesy lies. Ezekiel chapter 13 verses 2 through 7 says, Say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets are like jackals among ruins. Verse 6, Their visions are false and their divinations a lie. They say the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them, yet they expect their words to be fulfilled. Have you not seen false visions and uttered, uttered lying divinations when you say the Lord declares, though I have not spoken? Hundreds of times, Joseph Smith said that the Lord said when the Lord didn't said. And God says that he doesn't send prophets to declare something that is not going to happen. Jeremiah 27 verse 15 says, I have not sent them, declares the Lord. They are prophesying lies in my name. Therefore, I will banish you and you will perish, both you and the prophets who prophesy to you. And you might also want to read Jeremiah chapter 29 verses 8 and 9, which also talks about the false prophets and their false prophecies. We suggest to those who listen and shake with fear when these false predictions come to understand that God did not speak through those people. 
Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 tells us that God speaks only through Jesus Christ in these last days. Jesus is the final and the only living prophet. And Jesus said, no one knows the day nor the hour of his return. So instead of believing this nonsense, we should be redeeming our time rather than paying homage to living or dead false prophets. Psalm chapter 4 verse 2 says, How long, O man, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? You know, believing and following prophets who prophesy lies is loving delusions. We see and we talk with many, many people in the Mormon culture, both polygamists and Mormons, and many people who are finally recognizing that they have been deluded and that many of them realize they've been fed delusions from their birth. And they are turning from these delusions and seeking truth. And we do hope that all of our viewers will also do just that. Just toss out all those false predictions and the books that they're written in and pick up your Bible and pray that God would give you understanding of his word, which is the truth. And if you seek him with all your heart, you will find the truth. On January 17th, just two weeks from today, at 3.30 p.m., in room 102 of the United States District Court of Utah, Judge Clark Wadoops will be determining whether or not to uphold Utah's bigamy laws. He's going to decide if the Brown family of sister wives fame have any fundamental liberty interest in practicing polygamy or if the Brown's case can be allowed into the Supreme Court. And of course, we do hope and pray for this judge that he doesn't fall for cultural or political pressure. Instead, that he will have the integrity and the good sense to come to the same conclusion that Judge Bauman in Canada came to a year ago, that polygamy can and should be upheld as an illegal practice because of the inherent nature of abusiveness to women and children. Regarding the legalization of polygamy, I want to quote in part from an article by Faye Vauchel of the Princeton Theological Seminary. Her remarks are well worth taking note of, and she observes, and I quote, It is fair to ask just what the consequences of the establishment and legalization of polygamy in the West would be. Rest assured, the practice would not long remain an exotic and titillating source for TV reality shows, but would multiply quickly, bringing many woes with it. First, legal polygamy would guarantee that women in the West in polygamous relationships would begin to resemble third world women in multiple marriages. The achievements of the struggle for women's rights around the world would be blown to smithereens. Monogamous marriages have never been and never will be perfect. However, monogamy has been the foremost reason for the elevation of women to equality with men. Polygamy destroys the hope of equality at the core level, making the relationship between the man and the woman inherently unequal. It automatically consigns women to a status less than men and thus not as fully human as men. 
Multiplicity of partners automatically ensures unequal treatment before the law, and the first duty of the law is that another person not be permitted to, to do harm. Polygamy automatically does harm to the woman. The fact of the matter is that the destruction of monogamous marriage and the institutionalization of polygamy will automatically result in the reduction of women to mere concubines. Historically, wherever polygamy has reigned, women and children suffer and male dominance is guaranteed. Male dominance means sexual dominance, among other things." End quote. And to prove that what she said is spot on, I would want to quote from some of the early Mormon polygamist wives and what they said about their experiences in polygamy. The first quote is from Brigham Young's second wife, Mary Ann Angel Young, or Angel Young, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but she said, and I quote, God will be very cruel if he does not give us poor women adequate compensation for the trials we have endured in polygamy, end quote. A friend who suffered because of polygamy asked Zena Jacobs Huntington if the fault was hers because of her misery or was it the polygamous system that she was so miserable. And Zena told her, and I quote, You are not to blame. Neither are you the only woman who is suffering torments on account of polygamy. There are women in this very house whose hearts are full of hell. She was talking about Brigham Young's home and his wives, the prophet, his wives were miserable. Sarah Pratt said, polygamy is, and I quote, the direst curse with which a people or a nation could be afflicted. If completely demoralizes good men and makes bad men correspondingly worse. And finally, a daughter of Jedediah M. Grant remarked, quote, polygamy is all right when properly carried out on a shovel, end quote. So you can see what the early polygamist women thought of polygamy. Polygamy breeds a huge lack of individual respect for the woman. And we want to bring to your attention tonight, again, the story of Abraham and Sarah and Abraham's concubine, Hagar, to prove our point. Mormon polygamists love to use the example of Abraham in defense of their polygamy. But in reading the biblical account, the entire situation was an effort in pain and hurt and abusiveness, and Hagar lost in the end. Hagar was Abraham's concubine, and she was second class in that family. She once tried to exalt herself um, when she became pregnant, but Abraham, instead of coming to her aid or to her defense, he washed his hands of her and gave her completely into the hands of Sarah to do with as she wished. Well, Hagar was abused by Sarah. It was so bad, Hagar couldn't take it anymore, so she ran away. But God came to her rescue. Abraham didn't. Abraham and Hagar produced only one child together, showing that Hagar was no longer his sexual partner, and eventually Hagar was forced to leave with her son. 
Read the account for yourself. Don't read between the lines. God said what he meant, and he meant what he said. There are no hidden messages, and the sordid incident is told in Genesis chapters 16 and chapter 21. You might want to write that down and read it for yourself. But in Galatians, in the New Testament, we discover something very interesting, that polygamists generally either overlook or they willfully ignore. God explains in Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 through 31, that Abraham's wife, Sarah, represents freedom and inclusion in God's covenant promises. But Hagar, the concubine, the plural wife, was cast out, and neither she nor her son could be included in God's covenant promises. Only Abraham's first and legal wife was accepted and eligible to be included in God's covenant of grace. Polygamy is not condoned in the Bible. There is not one single polygamous story in the Bible that is not a sad commentary on the ugliness and the hurt and the agony and the torment and the distress and the suffering and damaging effects that permeates the polygamous lifestyle. Why? Why do you insist on living a life that guarantees that you will not be included in God's covenant promises? And why live in a misery that God never wanted or designed for you to participate in? You can leave, and you should. Much is going on today in, the, in today's world in their attempt to legalize all sorts of sexual behavior. Our concern on this show, of course, is polygamy. And it's amazing how many people are unaware of how the Bible treats polygamy. Yeah, we, we all know that polygamy is in the Bible. We read of many men in the Bible who took huge numbers of wives. But where did God command them to do that? And we continue to challenge our viewers. Will you please give us one single verse, one passage uh, where God commands polygamy? Would you tell us where he outlines plural marriage as part of his plan for eternal life? Tell us where the Bible explains that polygamy makes a person more Christ-like. There's not a single hint, not a verse, not a command, nothing at all in the Bible that God wants, condones, or commands polygamy. But the opposite is true. Ladies and women's and girls and females, you don't have to do this. Sister wives, if you're watching the show, you don't have to do this. God did not command it, but Joseph Smith did. And why did Joseph Smith command it? Well, he commanded it simply so he could hide behind God because of his own adulteries. And that is easily proven by reading your early Mormon history. If you're in polygamy, you can walk away. God will not be disappointed in you, nor will he punish you because you didn't keep some celestial marriage covenants. You see, those covenants didn't come from God, so he will never judge you for walking away from something that he is against. 
and God is against polygamy. And polygamy will keep you from knowing the blessings of the covenant of God's grace. And our ministry will help anyone who is interested in leaving the polygamous lifestyle. You will always be treated with respect and uh, we will help you if you have a desire or know somebody who has the desire to have a new life after polygamy. So I'd like to take a few minutes to get up to date on what's happening in Mormon polygamy groups. A lot has happened the past 30 days. We can't cover it all tonight, but I'm going to get some of it covered. The sister wives, of course, continue to present themselves to the world as being a normal, healthy, happy family. And if that's true, we're convinced it's in spite of polygamy, not because of it. And in reading many comments regarding their last few shows, people seem to begin, be beginning uh, to see that behind that thin veneer of perceived happiness, there is instead a lot of personal pain and jealousy and competitiveness in their lives of polygamy. The Browns lawyer defends their polygamous household in an article from the New York Times entitled, One Big Happy Polygamist Family. Their attorney writes that there are many polygamists in the United States and they're finding government intrusion into their personal lives insufferable. The Browns, he continues, want to be allowed to create a loving family according to the values of their faith. There are indicators that his arguments in defense of Cody Brown's polygamous family are being taken quite seriously. For instance, and our Mormon viewers need to hear this. According to a recent survey taken, fully half of Canadian Mormons would like to see the reinstitutionalization of plural marriage as a holy practice of their faith. This information was taken from the website AmericanThinker.com. So, Canadian Mormons want to reinstate polygamy. We wonder how many of our Mormon viewers are aware of that poll. And half of Canadian uh, Mormons obviously wanting polygamy back. We wonder what the Mormon leadership thinks about that. If an honest and private poll were taken in the United States, we wonder how many American Mormons also secretly wish it. I've talked to many of the Mormon people who say they would like to see it come back, but of course, every single one of them are men, not women. From a website called fanbolt.com, uh, Sister Wives, The Dark Side of Polygamy, I would like to share a little information. People need to understand that polygamy is not all this, this uh, phony sister wives and big love and the dargers. Uh, Utah and Arizona and other states, in fact, do turn a blind eye to polygamy where children is uh, girls as young as 12 are married off to older men and then they live off of the welfare and food stamps and Medicaid which they call bleeding the beast. Warren Jeffs, the leader of the FLDS, is serving the life sentence for rape of a child. He's ordered that only 15 men in his group can procreate with the women of his group and they found written in his journal about a bed ordered to be specially made for the purpose of sexually assaulting hundreds of young girls. This information was outlined in the pages of his diary that he referred to as priesthood 
records. He told his followers that the bed must be made of hardwood, sturdy so it wouldn't rattle, long enough to hold his frame and covered with a plastic sheet to protect the mattress from what will happen on it. Recently, a lot of the families have moved out of the Texas ranch, which means that many young girls are being moved across state lines or even across and into the Canadian border, which also means that they are involved in human trafficking for sexual reasons, another federal offense, and the government does not seem to be doing anything at this time. This group, scattered around the Mountain West and Canada, are nothing but pedophiles and welfare cheats, end quote. And we want to decriminalize this kind of activity? Decriminalizing polygamy is not legalizing it. There's a huge difference, and it would be a huge mistake to decriminalize polygamy. Two weeks from tonight, our guests will be Rebecca Kimball and Kristen Decker. Both of them are former polygamists. They are both former guests on our show. Both are from the All Red Polygamy Group, and we're going to have a panel discussion on the dangers of decriminalizing polygamy. Our viewers are welcome to come and watch the show live, or you can get your questions together before that night, two weeks from now, and that's going to be the same day of that court hearing that I talked about earlier, where the judge will determine if the sister wives have a legal basis to pursue their case to the Utah Supreme Court. Foster parents of some particular children that were temporarily removed from a Kingston family home a few years ago said that the female children in their care began every night by climbing into their beds, lying on their backs, clasping their hands in prayer, and spreading their legs apart. When asked why they were doing this, the foster parents were told that the girls were waiting for the hand of God to come and bless them between their legs. Young little girls were doing this. How far do we have to look for more crimes than the crime of polygamy itself? And one more thing before we break. From Papua New Guinea, we read, and I quote, Polygamy is not just an anti-Christian practice and against the moral law, but it is also a social threat. That is why a law to prevent it is urgent. Recently, a legislative action to ban polygamy was proposed by the governor. And back in 1982, another political leader, Peter Pipehole, demanded the banning of polygamy, calling it disgusting and unconstitutional. It is a practice that causes chaos and abuse in society. For this reason, he concludes, polygamy is no longer suitable for Papua New Guinea. And so, while previously uncivilized places are working to ban this archaic practice, the civilized nations are working to bring it back. We ask you, does no one learn from history anymore? We're going to take a break now, 
and open up our phone lines. You can call in with your comments or questions. Remember that we require a two-way conversation, not a one-way diatribe. We'd love to hear from you, whether you agree or disagree with us. Our phone number is 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. And while the phone start coming, calls start coming in, we'll share our ministry message with you. You are watching Polygamy, What Love Is This? Broadcasting live from Salt Lake City, Utah. This program is the broadcast outreach of A Shield and Refuge Ministry. Shield and Refuge is a point of first contact for Mormon fundamentalists who question the doctrines of the religion or who are actively seeking for an opportunity to escape the polygamist lifestyle. Examining the claims of fundamentalist doctrine against the backdrop of biblical truth is central to our efforts. We invite you to contact us. Call toll-free at 877-425-9993 or email us at tv at We want you to know that we have made available to you some outstanding resources free of charge. You will find them at our website, www.whatloveisthis.tv. There you will find the DVD, Lifting the Veil of Polygamy, which documents the real-life stories told firsthand of those who were lifted out of the culture of polygamy through the power and love of Jesus Christ. Also, free of charge to you, is the booklet, Is Polygamy Biblical? It explores plural marriage in the context of God's Word and answers questions like, Did God ever command polygamy? Is it part of God's plan? While you are at our website, make sure to take advantage of the archived episodes of this program, which can stream on demand directly to your computer. There are more than 100 shows to choose from. And if someone you know is unable to view this program via live broadcast, recommend that they visit this same website every Thursday at 8 p.m. Mountain Time to watch this show through live streaming video. Simply follow the links to the live streaming video page. If you are watching live tonight, we invite you to call us as we open our phone lines. The number is 801-973-TV20. That's 801-973-8820. Now, back to Polygamy, What Love Is This? with our host, Doris Hansen. Welcome back to our show, Polygamy, What Love Is This? I am Doris Hansen, your host, and we've been just kind of playing catch up on some of the things that's been going on in polygamy in the past year or so, and what is uh, coming up almost immediately um, with polygamy and the lawsuits and the determination to try and decriminalize polygamy uh, in this society. Uh, we do want to remind you of the court case two weeks from tonight. We ask that cr the Christians who are watching our show to please pray that God would give wisdom to the judge and that the right thing would be done that is best for our children and the women of our society. Our phone lines are open. We'd love to hear from you. Our phone number is 801-973-TV20. Give us a call. Uh, we'd love to hear your comments on any of these issues that we've been talking about. And we have on line one, Mark, calling from Salt Lake City. Hello, Mark. Yes, uh, that, that quote that you had, uh, the daughter of Jedediah M.'s uh, grant. Yes. You know, if, if uh, was she a sister to either B.J. Grant or Heber J. Grant? They were, they were brothers that were born the same 
time, and, and, and uh, Benjamin Franklin didn't live such a good uh, Mormon life. But anyway, do you know, that was a hilarious quote that you read. That was a good quote, wasn't it? <laughs> it yes, yeah, funny. And true. Well, that's not what I'm saying. But was it a full sister of a BJ, or was it Heber, Heber J's? Um, I'm, honestly, I'm not sure about that. Oh, okay. I'd have it to go back matter. and check I, that I, out. That was just funny. Yeah, yeah, I'm really not sure about that. Your, the answer to that question. But it is a good quote, and it's just, um, you know, I mean, indicative of what the women in polygamy thought about polygamy. Thank you. Okay, thanks for calling, Mark. Um, we have other calls that looks like that's coming in but they're not ready yet and so I want to tell a story while we're waiting for the calls to continue and you can call us our lines are open don't wait till five minutes to to nine to call that'll be too late to really hear what you have to say so so start calling now but while we're waiting for you to call in I have a story also that I would like to share of an experience of a, of a young girl in the FLDS polygamous group a few years ago she was 14 years old, and she was forced into a polygamous marriage in the FLDS polygamy group, and her name is Ruby Jessup. There was a big deal made of this tragedy, but the civil authorities, although they were apprised of the event, they refused to do very little to help this 14-year-old girl who was forced to marry um, an old man in her family. It was a man that she despised, and the ceremony was presided over by none other, of course, than Warren Jeffs. Now, on her wedding night, she reportedly was brutally and repeatedly raped, which caused dangerous hemorrhaging, but there was no one to help her, and there wasn't anyone for her to turn to. She's only 14. Ruby attempted to run from this forced marriage, but she was caught and imprisoned in the home of her stepfather. The Washington County Sheriff's Office was informed of this kidnapping, and when a deputy went to Colorado City to check out this alleged crime, he was told by the church leaders that Ruby was on vacation. The deputy took this information at face value and left. Despite the report of her kidnapping, he left without further investigation. Well, the neglect of his duty caused an uproar among those people who knew that Ruby was in trouble and who were trying in vain to rescue her. A month later, the FLDS was forced by the Utah Department of Child and Family Services to bring Ruby to meet with a social worker. Ruby was taken to that appointment. However, she was interviewed not alone, but in the presence of one of her kidnappers. And she was scared and she was intimidated. And so she told the social worker that everything was just fine. Of course she would say that. So instead of a proper investigation and without a personal and a private interview, Ruby was returned to her captors in the polygamy group. There were no follow-ups, there were no tests for abuse, there was no civil protection offered to this young girl who was completely unable to protect herself. These polygamous men and mothers are effective in their bully techniques and heavy-handed intimidation. It is rare, if not impossible, for a young person to withstand such pressure. Ruby subsequently vanished. 
she disappeared. For several years, no one knew where she was. She was unable to communicate with anyone outside of the FLDS compound, and she had just plain vanished within the folds of the FLDS community. Now, several years later, Ruby has managed to get away from the control and the clutches of her polygamous family, but she doesn't have her children, and she's trying to get them back. Will you pray that she will be able to have full and complete custody of those children before they too become victimized as she was? And if you know of anyone who is in this same kind of a captive situation and needs help, give us a call. We will do everything we can to facilitate an escape into freedom. Our offer of help is not just for the FLDS people that are, are, that are held captive, but, but women or girls that are held captive in any of the polygamy groups, whether it's the Kingston group or the All Red group or the Independents or the Harmston group. It doesn't matter. We will help anyone with unconditional help for them. You can, um, if, or if you know of someone who would like our phone number, it's a toll-free number. It's 877 425-9993, toll-free, it's a Shield and Refuge ministry, and everything connected with our rescue efforts will be kept in total confidence, and anyone who sees this show tonight or who watches the show at a later date online, if you need help, we'll help you. All you have to do is give us a call, and again, it's confidential. And, and we have to say, we're, here we are in the year 2013. We're blessed to live in the most powerful country in the world, the country that boasts in its protection of individual freedoms. And we are still allowing this kind of coercion and child brides and sexual enslavement and sexual trafficking. And now, to throw salt on the wounded, the federal court is choosing whether behavior like this will be tolerated by decriminalizing the very practice that initiates and incubates tragedies like Ruby Jessup. And you know what? Ruby Jessup is only one of thousands of similar stories. Some got away, but most of them didn't. May the Lord have mercy on this nation that treasures sexual freedoms above the safety of its children. Now, some of the information that I got for Ruby Jessup's story was on helpthechildbrides.com, but I know someone very close who knows Ruby, who contacted her just a couple of days ago to make sure that what um, we were talking about here tonight was true, and Ruby verified that it was true. And if you think this story is unbelievably outrageous, you need to read the story of another 14-year-old girl. Her name was Helen Mar Kimball, and she was coerced and manipulated into becoming a plural wife with none other than the infamous Joseph Smith. We have a call coming in on line two from Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Yeah. Yes, Sarah, you're on the air. Hello, Sarah. And you need to turn your Hi. you need to turn your volume down on your television. Yeah, I turned it off. Okay, you're on the. Um, I have an interesting question. Um, in Second Samuel, they're talking about Nathan just talked to David. Yes. Um, the prophet, and he said, 
I'm in, see, chapter 12, verse 8. Yes. It says, I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives, and that's plural, into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had not, let's see, and if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore, thou hast despised the commandment of the Lord to do the evil in his sight, which was kill Uriah and take his wife. Right. right. And so mm-hmm. then he was punished with all these horrible things because of that. But I'm, I'm concerned wondering about what that means. Okay. It sounds like God said, oh, he gave these, all these other wives to him. Okay. But first of all, there was and, only, <clears throat> first of all, um, there was only two other, there were only two women that would have been given to David, and it takes quite a bit of explanation. I'll do it just as quickly and as concisely as I can. David was the second king of Israel. Saul was the first king. Saul was killed, and so David came in behind Saul and took his place and took the kingdom. That God gave him the kingdom, let's put it like that. Well, when, whenever a new king comes in power, he receives everything that the previous king had. He receives all of his property, all of his family, all of his everything. He receives the entire kingdom. So when God was telling David, I gave you the kingdom and everything in it, that included anything that David wanted. Why did he have to go steal another man's wife? Now, if you go back and you look at Saul and, and the first king, Saul, the Bible tells us very clearly that Saul had a wife and a concubine, and that's all he had. And Saul was old enough to be David's father. So if David was going to take the wives of Saul, he would be taking women old enough to be his mother. Plus, David was married to one of Saul's daughters, which means that David would have been married to one of his stepmothers or his uh, mother-in-law. And that would be ridiculous to even consider that all those things would actually have happened. So we have to take the whole thing in context and take a look. God gave the kingdom and everything in it to David. Why did he have to steal another man's wife when he didn't have to do that? That's all he's saying. He did not tell David to live polygamy. You won't see that in there. So did he, somewhere in there later or something, a child came to him and was, was up, or a servant came to and said, your child has been neglected or something because... No, what happened is the, da- the David and Bathsheba, uh, Bathsheba, of course, is the one he committed adultery with and had her husband killed because she was pregnant. And Bathsheba had a child, and, and God said that, he was good, that that child would die that he was not going to live. And David prayed and prayed that God would have mercy on that child and let the child live, but he died instead. So the servant came to David and said, your child has died. Um, I'm talking about a different thing where there was a little kid, a little boy, sometime in the store um, that was from some some woman that he had slept with, a concubine or something, out in the... Um, not like somewhere in the kingdom, and they were saying something like he was neglecting his other wives or something out there. 
that he'd slept with and had children with and wasn't taking care of them. I don't, not in David, not but as far as David's God was story goes. was or something. No, I, I don't, I don't, that's not, that's not one of David's stories. That doesn't sound familiar at all to, about David, at all. Okay. Well, so I, I, more. I don't know what you're referring to on that. You would need a reference, you'd need a Bible reference, or maybe it's a story from somewhere else, I don't know. Anyway, does, is, does that answer your question? Um, I think so. Okay, it's very interesting to read in the Bible and find out the history behind some of the reasonings uh, of, of why um, these things took place. But there's an answer to everything. And the one answer, God does not contradict himself. And he gave Adam and Eve together. And the two shall become one, which was also verified by Jesus when he was here. He went clear back to Genesis uh, chapter 2, Jesus did in chapter 3, and said the two shall be one. He did not authorize ever or condone or command more than one wife for anyone. He did uh, all those other children all come from Bathsheba later, like Tamar no. and Amnon and Ab No, they Amnon. weren't no, they weren't Bathsheba's children. No, they were children of his other wives. You can get into Chronicles and read the, the genealogy of David's um, um, polygamous wives, and you'll find out who was the father or who was the mother of each of those children. But, but you mentioned Tamar, and she was raped by her half-brother. I mean, everything that happened in David's family after that was sexual crimes. It was awful. His, his son Absalom took his plural wives, his, his uh, multiple wives, up on the, the, the roof of the palace and raped them in front of the rest of the people. I mean, it was a terrible situation. None of those things are, are something that God wants, and it all happened, took place because of David's propensity toward multiple women. It wasn't good. No polygamy story in the Bible is good. Any other questions? Um, no, thank you. Okay, thanks for calling, Sarah. Okay, our phone lines are open. If you want to call in, our telephone number is 801-973-TV20. We get this call all the time um, about David and um, how, how the prophet came to him, Nathan, and said that God has given you all of these wives. But if you take a look and you make sure that you look at the timing and the people that they're talking about, um, and when it says, I gave you my master's wives, he was, he was talking about Saul, the previous king. Oh dear, the phone rings. And, and the previous king had other wives. Uh, had only uh, two wives, and you can read about that also in the Bible. So uh, you've got to look up the facts before you try to come to a conclusion that isn't there. Uh, I want to read an email that someone wrote. It's anonymous. He asked me not to use his name, but he said, in visiting with our previous bishop, to whom I was a counselor, I mentioned the many wives of Joseph Smith. He replied that he knew about them, but Joseph Smith was only sealed to them and never had sexual relations with any of them. I'm sure that his belief is not true. Where in church history or other history does it tell us what his relationships were with these plural wives? Thanks, and please keep my identity anonymous. Uh, 
So to anonymous, and we hear this a lot as well. Uh, the the bishops and these people don't they don't even check their own history to make sure of what's true and isn't true. But Joseph Smith did uh, the, the the it's a myth that Joseph Smith didn't have sexual relations with his plural wives. And another one of the myths about Smith's polygamy is that his wives were, were sealed to him after he died, not while he was still alive. And both of those statements are untrue. Now, there's dozens of places, probably hundreds of places on the Internet, that will confirm that most of Joseph Smith's wives were also his bed partners, with all the footnotes and all the references and journals and, and the wives' own uh, uh, writings about what happened. First of all, uh, also, the only reason given for Mormon polygamy was the, to raise up righteous seed. That's the only reason. And if he didn't marry them to have righteous seed, then why did he marry them? And I, I use very good books for information on this show. And one book is by Mormon historian Tom, Todd Compton, and it's entitled In Sacred Loneliness. And it's the one that I use the most. Todd Compton is a Mormon in good standing with his church, and he documents at least 34 wives of Joseph Smith. He tells the story of each wife with details and dates and names, references, footnotes, and all the proof information that anyone would need. And another good book is entitled Nauvoo Polygamy by George Smith, and he also has an abundance of footnotes and church historical records. Another good author is Michael Quinn. He's a Mormon historian, and he's written several books and Internet articles on Joseph Smith's uh, polygamous sexual romps. And another good book is called Mormon Polygamy by Richard Van Wagener, and there are some interesting websites you can go to to get some good information. utlm.org, and that website is full of all kinds of references from LDS church sources. There's another one called www.i4m.com. That has a lot of good references that you can go to. And again, there's the, the uh, footnotes that you need. And mormonthink.com. And that website is by former Mormon educator Grant Palmer, who is another prodigious, has a prodigious quantity of solid information about early Mormon polygamy. So that should answer the question. Um, you do need to know Joseph Smith did have at least 34 wives, and those 34 wives, most of them he did have sexual relationships with, according to the journals and historical records, and even some of the verbal uh, testimony of these women whom he was married to. And again, we want to ask if he didn't have sexual relations with them. Why did he marry them? Because the only reason given for that Joseph Smith said God gave was to raise up a righteous seed, and that's the only way that they could raise up righteous seed. Well, we are at the end of our show again, and um, we do have a couple of calls here that are waiting, but we can't take your call. Leave your name and number, and I'll be happy to call you back tomorrow if it's something that I can answer a question about. 
Did you know that the Bible tells us that we are to forget the past, but instead look forward and set our goal on Jesus Christ and then strive forward toward that goal and forget the past? Then that's good advice for New Year's resolution. Um, this new year, you can have new life in Christ knowing and living in the truth instead of the burdensome works and pain of polygamy. Being in polygamy doesn't impress God, nor does being in a particular church impress Him. Nor, God doesn't take a look at how many commandments we're not keeping. He's not shocked by that. He's not impressed about how many covenants we've made. And God isn't pleased if we're in Christ unless we're in Christ. That's the only thing that pleases him. Just like in the days of Noah, all those who were in the ark were the ones and the only ones who were saved from the flood. The ark represents Jesus Christ. We must be in Christ, not in a polygamy group in order to be saved. And Jesus said the spirit gives life and the flesh counts for nothing. And in Galatians 6.15 it says what counts is a new creation. It doesn't say what counts is polygamy because Polygamy doesn't count. In fact, polygamy will hinder you from knowing and experiencing God's infinite grace and His unconditional love. To be in Christ, we must throw out everything, every work, every human effort, and cling to Jesus Christ alone, asking for forgiveness and repenting, turning from our way and going His way, and Jesus alone for eternal life. That alone will give you new life in Christ, not earned by you, but received by you as God's gift to you because He died for you. Good night. This has been the audio podcast edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? This program is a production of A Shield and Refuge Ministry and Main Street Church of Brigham City. You can view current and past video episodes as well as download audio episodes of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance in leaving a polygamous situation, please contact us. We are here to help. All of our contact information can be found at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 877-425-9993. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our other programs, we'd love to hear from you. Write us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again.